We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way, and I, 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 I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 39 months into two weeks to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Emerson alongside uh, Bruce Adams. Bruce, it's good to see you this week. How are you? Healthy and alive. Doing well. Enjoying. I know this is kind of a, a trope of the Midwest to immediately go into the weather, but uh, it's it's been actually really nice here. Considering we're in the middle of July, it's been it, quite lovely. Speak for yourself because it is hotter than 15 hells where I am, but it's manageable for me. But it's still the, the locals here. It's kind of tough for them. But well, you know, you guys also not having air conditioning. That's a that's a I've got big... air conditioning just in case I, I've got <laughs> I've got two. I've got one upstairs, one downstairs, just in case. Very American and, of you. Yes. And I had to use both of them this week. Believe me, I did. Yeah. I mean, granted, we've had air conditioning going and it has been hot here. But it's not been 110 degrees, 70 percent humidity, uh, at least not yet. We may not see that till August. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, according to the almanac, we're in El Nino, I believe. Is it El Nino right know. now? Uh, El Nino or El Nino, whichever El Nino, one was whatever. the one that's supposed to be the wetter, colder, uh, more severe winter, whichever one that was. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, that That's what we're in. So this whole... Oh, climate change and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, we're, we're in a more active time right now. So speaking of climate change, I, and I hate to keep harking on this, but they are they're smashing climate change everywhere you look. Bruce, you know who Leonardo DiCaprio is? Sure. Yeah. The big climate change activist, right? Him. He's mm. he's all about stopping people from expanding their carbon footprints and everything. I'm sure he took his own private helicopter from his private yacht that he had just to go to dinner the other night because he cares so much about the carbon footprint and the impact that he has on climate change. He, he cares so much about that. He cares so deeply about this this utopia that that we have to we have to do everything we can in order to to curb our dependence on creating a larger carbon footprint. Um, you know, when it comes to celebrities, if it wasn't for the fact that they're out here doing this um, green whatever telling us that we can own nothing and we should be happy about it, but then they go and own a yacht that's probably bigger than most people's um, kind of, I was going to say house, but uh, that's like multiple houses in one. 
um, with the private each helicopter. level on that. Yeah. yeah, with the private helicopter. Each floor on that yacht is bigger than most people's houses, and it, it, we can see at least four. Not to mention the uh, the dock underneath of it, the dry dock where you have yeah. the extra boats and the little inflatables and the ski uh, jet skis and and the kayaks and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if it if it if it wasn't for them out here saying all these things, I would actually not know or care who they are. Uh, now, obviously, Leonardo DiCaprio, that's kind of a name that's It's a household everywhere. name at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So the, maybe not as much nowadays as it was back in the past. But yeah, that's that's a difficult one not to know. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, you've got to reduce your your dependence on, on your hunger for carbon. You see, you see, there's just there's so much of that you have to pay attention to. Anyway, I don't want to talk about climate change today. We could go on and on about that because there's so much junk in the news and and in the, well, the so-called news and across the world about climate change. Hell, at the NATO summit, they're talking about climate change. They're saying today that the war in Ukraine affects climate change or something. I think it was, I think it was John Kerry said that. Yeah, John Kerry, war in Ukraine is contributing to climate change. You couldn't make it up. Yeah, I mean, technically he's not wrong. If you look at the wars we've had in the past and you look at the damage we've ca caused to environments, true. I mean, you look at you look at for example, look at World War 1 and the the no man's land in between each trench. That was quite devastating, but at the same time, those places that were where trench warfare happened, many of those places are forests again. The same with World War 2. Some of the locations that were heavily bombed or um, a lot of fighting happened. Uh, you'll find old tanks sitting out in the woods. Those woods weren't there at the time. So uh, I agree we're, we're damaging our planet in the sense of we're toxifying it. Uh, but the thing is, it heals up too. So it would if they would just knock off all this nonsense. Really? I mean, we're you've mentioned trench warfare. You know, in Ukraine, we're actually back to trench warfare. Have we learned nothing in the last hundred years? Literally, have we learned nothing? about how devastating that was, and we're right back to it again. We have, but you're well, also talking have. about Ukrainians and Russians who are of the same mentality still being stuck over 100 years ago in the past in their, in their way of thinking. So it's no surprise. I suppose we could talk a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine, but before we do that, or maybe we should just get into it now. I mean, we had a pretty good conversation going on in prep about what is what is going on over there and how it relates to Russia and China and the West and NATO and everything and uh, and all that. But I think before we do that, we should listen to our dear commander in chief, Mr. Two Scoops, Joe Biden. I think we need to listen to him on how many freestanding uh, free 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 members, freestanding mem whatever he says that we we have now or we're going to have or what we'll have in NATO. I don't know. I don't know. You figure it out. I don't trust a single one of these people. This is the biggest problem. This is this is the biggest issue I have is I, I don't trust Mr. Biden. Mr. Biden is an agent of Moscow. He has been his entire career. So why should I believe a word that he says now? Don't get me wrong. I'm one of these people that are 
an independent conservative, and I actually believe in NATO, as opposed to a lot of these people on the alt-right who say, we've got to can it. We've got to get rid of it. Do you know what? I might have been misled for a long period of time thinking the same thing, but now that I've been doing a lot of the research that I've been doing, and you've been involved in that, I understand why that has been a talking point, and I understand why people have been led to believe that. When you've got two opposing geopolitical forces in the world that want to see to your destruction, but yet they don't have the, they might have the nuclear means to completely annihilate you, but it doesn't at least in the case of Russia, we haven't seen China in action yet, but I can't imagine it would be much different because they're based on the same doctrine. They don't exactly have the conventional means to be able to pull off a nuclear defeat, if that makes sense. So in order for them to do that, in order for them to be successful, then that means, militarily speaking, then that means that they have to disarm us, right? They have to disarm people in, in the Western alliance. They have to disarm South Korea, Japan, Australia, Germany, Poland, France, Italy, the UK, the US, Canada. They have to disarm all of us, right? No, you don't need NATO. You don't need that old outdated thing. You need a new European army that we need to put together. Do you remember that? They tried to float that a few years ago. Well, that yeah. would be, yeah, that, well, you, you see, you didn't have a justification because you had NATO, right? You didn't have a justification for a European army. But if there was no NATO, then you had all of a sudden the standing up of a European army. And then you were able to get Europe under your sphere of influence. Who do you think that army is going to be working for? So not the I don't. Yeah, not the people. I, I don't trust Mr. Biden and I don't trust Macron or, or, or any of these other people. I, I don't. Macron's over there kissing G's ass. I don't like it. So whenever I hear them up there paying lip service to all of this, don't get me wrong. I believe that all of our countries need to be united in an alliance against the people that want to see to our destruction. But I don't like the people that are in charge of it. That's my problem. Did you see that Biden made a recommendation as to who the next leader of NATO should be? It was just a recommendation. Thank God it hasn't gone through. Von der Leyen from the EU. Of course. Really? Of course. <laughs> really? <laughs> she has wrecked Europe, not single-handedly, but she's had a big hand in it. And you're going to recommend her for the head of the military alliance? I don't think so. What what experience does that woman have in anything other than reading a teleprompter? What experience does she have, if any? Well, you, you said it. Um, reading a teleprompter. She did a good job at... Uh, no, no. At wrecking, wrecking Europe, yes. Uh, yeah, she did a great job of Europe. that. Yeah. Great job. Well, she wrecked Germany. And then they, they, yeah. She wrecked this place, and then uh, Merkel sent her packing over to Brussels, and she wrecked Europe. <laughs> so she, uh, she did her job, I guess. I mean, what do you expect out of her? So I don't see how... Uh, and again, I'm I'm doing some uh, I'm doing some research. I'm reading a uh, the current book I'm reading right now is called uh, Soviet Military Strategy in Europe. Now that might sound a little outdated, but it is very relevant to what we're actually witnessing now. Why is it relevant? Again, book being published in the 1980s. This book right now, right now on eBay is going for 150 US dollars. There is a reason this book is going for that much. You can get it on Google Books. I think digitally we saw it for, what was it, 60? Even that. Yep. So it is still available if you are so inclined to want to read it. I think it's very, it's very valuable. I think it's very knowledgeable. But the information that's contained in this book, we're actually seeing in real time because we see what the Russian military is doing, even with Wagner, in Ukraine. They're following the same doctrine, it seems. Might be a couple of deviations here and there. But more or less, they're following the same doctrine as it related to even the Soviet era. 
So they're still following that. But this is this book, this this talks a lot about nuclear strikes and, and things like that. And it's, it's relevant to now because Putin has just moved what, like 400 nuclear weapons into uh, into Belarus, about 800 miles from my front door. But see, we have misconceptions. They're understandable misconceptions because we're always told here in the West that nuclear war is going to be apocalyptic and everybody's going to die and it'll be like uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki and everything all over again. And it'll be that times a thousand. And if you look at Hollywood movies, what are they when a nuclear detonation happens? Oh, my God, there's utter devastation and everything's wrecked and blah, blah, blah. That's not how it is. That's fear porn is all that is. But I'm curious as to how they intend to pull this off, because according to Soviet doctrine, if according to Russian military doctrine, if you're going to initiate a nuclear attack on another area, namely in this case would be NATO territory, right? Because NATO still exists. And their whole concept is, is that you mobilize quickly, you smash through it, and you paralyze, you demoralize, and you neutralize the enemy before they can form an organized resistance against you, especially NATO. They don't want NATO mobilizing to anything because they've spent the better part of the last 30 years trying to tear it apart and getting us to tear it apart for them. That has to be avoided at all costs. But in order for them to facilitate a, a nuclear strike, in this case would be Europe, they would have to have conventional forces ready to move in. And they can't even get out of Ukraine. I, I don't understand. I'm not paying attention to the mainstream media, okay? I'm, I'm looking at things on my own, and I'm making my own determination on this, okay? I'm not an expert by any means. I, I just go by what I see. And I listen to experts that are not in the mainstream, guys like Yuri Felchinsky. I was listening to him over the weekend on this, this incident specifically in Ukraine, this conflict in there. And, and he believes that the Russian losses, again, this is a guy that doesn't get mainstream airtime. He believes that the Russian losses are actually higher than what the Western mainstream media is saying. Bruce and I watched a video, was it last week? On one of these, these incidents that they have. This is just to give you an idea. An anti-tank battalion rolls in to a town and they mine a roadway with anti-tank mines and then they leave. Not three hours later, a tank battalion comes rolling through, a Russian tank battalion, and they drive over their own anti-tank mines and they blow up. How do you expect to wage conventional warfare on mainland Europe into NATO territory when you're making mistakes like this? It just, it doesn't make any sense to me. No, um, the hardware we've been sending Ukraine is old, out of date hardware that you know, Cold War era, and it's shredding the Russian equipment, let alone the, the fact that Russians are shredding their own equipment with the uh, mines that you were talking about, which are, by the way, that's, that's supposed to be against international law. You're not supposed to use landmines anymore because once the battle is done and over, you, you've got those mines left there that civilians will find. And that, that that's bad because when they find them, that means someone dies or loses a limb or, you know, something like that. It's 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 not not safe. Um, that's the other argument, by the way. Um, there's a big hubbub lately about the uh, the cluster munitions that we sent Ukraine, which is um, you you don't use cluster munitions because it it, it drops about it, it's about a probably a baseball size explosive, right? Not all of them explode, so you have again landmines laying everywhere. But anyway, all that aside, you're telling me. And by that, I mean, I'm not meaning you, but I'm, I'm meaning the elite and the, you know, that Russia, I, I, I'm, I'm going to throw China in there as well, because the naval force that we see China has and how they couldn't even deal with India was it in the, uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, and the um, job. They, tr- they tried to go in there yeah. and fight. They were at uh, 4,000 meters, about 15,000 feet, or 13,000, 15,000 feet. And I actually saw some video, I want to say it was this morning, actually, of some of the PLA soldiers. They're literally falling over because the air is too thin. They just can't operate in those those types of altitudes. Which is, that's very dangerous, by the way. If you're if you're a flatlander and you decide you're going to go up into the mountains like that and do uh, very extraneous activity before you're um, fully acclimated, that will lead to altitude sickness, which can be fatal. That 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 can lead to you dying. So th- that uh, that goes to show they don't care about their own troops. But all that to say, these are not countries with uh, hardware as advanced as ours. And you're telling me that these countries are threats to us. I I don't understand when. I'm, me, I'm me, kind of let me jump in there because that that's an interesting mm. point you bring up in this book that I'm reading. They do make mention. Uh, obviously, this is not about China, but you can apply the old Soviet military doctrine to modern communist China because they were brought up on the same doctrine and they still employ it today. If you go by that, they do say you worry about quantity before you worry about quality. Again, this is not something that we would do here in the West. This concept is completely foreign to us, but I'm, I'm reading for their own doctrine. Uh, guys like Marshall Sokolovsky, who wrote Soviet military strategy, that book is still available today. The Rand Corporation actually gives digital copies of that away for free over on their website. Uh, it's called Soviet military strategy. It's, in, it's translated into English. Uh, but anyway, they say in there that you hope to overwhelm the enemy through sheer numbers, and then you worry about quality after that. So maybe that kind of goes along with what you're saying when it comes to China. They expect to lose all this stuff, but they just don't care because they've got so many more that'll just go right in behind them. And as Marty has talked about before, the Russians, rather than decommission something, they'll just create new battalions and new companies and new units behind them, new divisions and everything else. Yeah. Uh, so here's here's part of the problem with that, um, I, the ideology they're, they're using. In the Middle East, I've used this example before. Uh, these were Crusader tanks, which use very similar uh, composite armors to our own. They took almost two dozen anti-tank munitions. And the only reason that they had to go and repair after having Soviet weapons used against them, anti-tank weapons, the only reason they had to go back and repair was because it knocked out their optics on, on, on their tank. Again, you may have the quantity, but if you're, and, and, and using that as the example, if you're using Russian anti-tank weapons against a Western country's armor that's using uh, up-to-date Hell, even kind of, I would even say if your armor is even that of what we were using back in the, you know, 90s, early 2000s, they don't stand a chance. I mean, almost two dozen and we hit we hit one of their tanks, just one with one anti-tank weapon and it obliterates it. And then they're hitting ours with like almost two dozen before they even have to go in and replace an optical sensor. I mean, that that that's a pretty big gap. So even if you're even if you have, uh, you know, uh, twice the number or even more, your hardware still sucks. Yeah, it still won't matter. I, I And this goes back to the point where Ukraine, you know, Ukraine didn't even have and when I say Ukraine, forget about Zelensky and the politics and the media and all that stuff. Right. That's just a that's a show. That's a sideshow. Ukraine didn't even have an organized military fighting force until Russia actually invaded. When Russia invaded, of course, it's not an invasion, it's a special military operation, you see, until they actually invaded. And then you had Ukrainians, average Ukrainians stand up and say, um, no, you're not going to kick me out of my home. Sorry. And they fought back. The average Ukrainian is what I'm talking about. 
We gave them, and the only reason we gave them this is because the UK and Poland actually pressured the US, the Biden administration, to give them 12 HIMARS. 12. That's all we gave them. 12 HIMARS. That changed the entire dynamics of that conflict. Russia has been on their back heels. I don't care what the media says. I don't care what the alt, the so-called alt media says. They have been on their heels ever since. With 12 HIMARS? 12. This makes no sense to me. Where are the Spetsnats? Where's the T-14 Armadas? Again, okay, those are tanks. Those are tanks. Those are their most advanced tanks, supposedly. I get it. Tanks don't work in Ukraine. But in the areas where they have solid paved roads for them to be able to operate on, we can't see at least one in action. Where's their Armada program? And more than that, let's say they have an Armada program that's that's fully operational, right? Which you said that you saw them running columns down uh, streets in a parade, right? But yeah, supposedly, supposedly, the question then becomes, okay, well, if tanks don't work in Ukraine, which historically they don't, if tanks don't work in Ukraine, what are the armadas for? That uh, unless they're that th this is a possibility that could be an updated um, T ninety specifically used for let's say they use uh, nuclear weapons um, and they have better shielding on a T fourteen for radiation and it's more of a armored platform to occupy irradiated zones, which is part of their uh, <laughs> their their crazy tactics of nuke a, a military target and then occupy the 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 freshly nuked um, location with radiation like it, it's insane. Well, not so not maybe exactly. maybe that's not exactly. all they are. Yeah, not exactly. To to be clear, you drop the nuclear weapon in their way of doing things. You drop the nuclear weapon, the tactical nuclear weapon, and then that creates that the, basically wedge an opening. More or less, yeah. You create the opening by doing that. And then you're expected, as Russia or China, you're expected to cross that zone as quickly as possible and then get to the actual objective in the area in the rear behind that. And then you smash any organized resistance that's there. You seize and hold that territory. Still, the point is maybe the T-14 is designed to be more resistant to chemical, biological and nuclear than, yeah, you know, actually the it, it's Again, interesting point you bring up. And if you hadn't said that, I probably probably would have glossed right over it. They actually have all of their vehicles and, and artillery and everything else. Everything is designed to be what's called a dual purpose. So everything is designed to operate in radiation and chemical biological warfare already. The troops are actually instructed to stay in the vehicles because they actually get more protection while they're in the vehicles to get across that contaminated zone. And even if, even if it's not fully shielded, uh, those vehicles. Technically, having a layer of steel between you and radiation is better than not having anything at all uh, because it will absorb some of the radiation. So, uh, yeah. In fact, our I, I know we've been uh, doing this for a long time. Our um, main battle tanks and some of the IFEs and whatnot have all been shielded for a very long time against radiation. But also uh, some of the the internals like spalling and all, uh, the, um, there's a layer of they used to do this. I don't know if they still do this, but there was a layer of lead that was used for spalling um, as well as Kevlar. So lead would also fantastic at um, radiation shielding. Uh, so uh, that that that's also 
something we've been doing for a long time and the, and they're capable of sealing it off in case of chemical or biological. So we've already been doing this for a long time. So it's no surprise that their tanks, I mean, you know, Cold War, that was something during that time, that was a possibility that we nuked one another and it, they had to be able to function in that environment. So I'm, I'm legit curious if that's all they're doing with those is more or less making them more make them look like they're more advanced because they've been using the same uh, chassis and style and everything for, God, what, 60-some years? I mean, it, it's more or less been, like, the first model, I think, was, like, T-54s or something like that, and it hasn't strayed very far from that design since. The silhouette's gotten a little bit uh, lower to the ground, and that's that's more or less all that's really changed other than the internals. They also have one of the dumbest auto-loading systems of any any of the tanks um, when you compare it to the Western world, the ammunition is stored in um, like shielded containers on our uh, tanks that is uh, more removed away from the crew compartment. So if it ever does get hit, it's not going to kill. It's going to be less likely to injure the crew, right? It gives them a better chance of survival. The Russians, on the other hand, you're literally sitting on top of the entire ammunition store. It is absolutely insane the way they do it. You take one round and... In fact, if you've watched any of the videos of Russian tanks being blown up and going catastrophic, you see the barrel or the um, the turret, the entire thing being launched up, uh, up to like 300 feet into the air because all the ammunition is literally in a ring around where the crew sits. They, they literally sit on this auto-loading mechanism and they have the 60 rounds or whatever it is that they store under there with the propellant and everything just stored right there. So if they do get catastrophically hit, all of those rounds go off at once and up goes the turret. Of course, you know, the, the, the crew turns into a mist. I know it's a little graphic for being family friendly, but this is the reality of war. They don't care about maybe the T-14 is designed to be more survivable. Maybe it's, it's better for the crew because uh, legitimately it is actually more expensive when you look at it from a Russian standpoint. It is actually more expensive to train someone to operate a tank than it is to hand them a Kalashnikov and throw them on the front line. You can take convicts and just throw them onto the front lines, whereas if you want a semi-competent tank driver that can accurately run over those tank mines, you, you've got to train them first, and that, that takes time. That goes to the other point, is training. I don't think they're training any of these guys. It doesn't seem like they are. They seems like they're very, very low trained. I mean, they, they probably go, have you ever used heavy equipment before? And if you say yes, okay, you, you drive tank. That, that, that's probably the line of, uh, uh, of questioning that goes there. And then they go through a very basic course. This is how you drive tank. And that, that's probably about it. They, they probably don't know anything about the ins and outs of the vehicle, field repairs, any of those kind of things. No. And it's just like, you have to have, you have to have an entire logistical system set up to run tanks in your military. The thing that perplexes me is the Russians, they're supposed to know this. They had at one point in time, I think an army that was formidable, actually, I shouldn't even say an army, an army, navy, and an air force, not so much an air force, I guess, but an army and a navy that was pretty close at one point in time to our own. But things seem to have been kind of diminished. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, a German citizen. The person said to me, I've been watching what's going on in Ukraine. And I said, I, I don't understand. We've been led to believe this entire time that Russia is this big, bad, monumental, gargantuan military fighting force. Where are they? 
I, I still don't know. I'm still waiting. I mean, I'm not counting the Russians out just yet because they're very good at, at playing this kind of deception game. Conventionally speaking, I'm, I, I have my doubts. I'll just put it that way. But see, maybe do you have a thought on that, Bruce. Go ahead. But before I play this clip here. Yeah, uh, I, I was just going to add that um, I'm actually pretty convinced. I think going into Ukraine, they thought this would be a moment of we're going to show ourselves of it as if we're strong. Right. And then they started getting their asses handed to them. I think the intention was to go in there and it be a show of brute force strength. And it didn't go that way. And yeah, kind of like what they did with Georgia and Chechnya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now they're actually showing how weak they really are. And I think that's I think that's what's going on. It was a bluff and the bluff failed. Yeah. And it just so happened. And I actually had heard this from uh, from somebody who is uh, an expert on uh, Russia and former Soviet Russia. And they said that their people that are inside Russia were telling them their contacts were saying that the Kremlin actually lied, as in like Central Command, they actually lied to their own troops the day that it began. They told them they were out on a training op and they had already crossed the border. It was too late. They'd already committed the act. So they had to go, which sounds about right. And I, I think I think to your point, yes, because what we what were we hearing prior to all of that happening prior to Russia going into Ukraine? What were we hearing? Well, they're going to have it rolled up in two weeks. No problem. That's what it was supposed to be. And you know what? Going back and, and reading their military doctrines, fascinating to learn about this stuff, at least from my perspective, going back and reading it and them following from what we're able to see their their actual doctrine and see it in action. They depend on speed and coordination. They depend on that. That is one of their biggest axes is speed and coordination. Their whole concept is, is that you get in there, you smash them as quickly as possible so they don't have time to build an organized resistance. And I think with how Ukraine was before, they didn't have an actual organized fighting force. And so they thought they could just roll them up, like you said. But maybe I'm just, you, you know how we are with as being Westerners, Bruce, we misdiagnose things, right? Maybe I'm just not seeing things clearly. And so therefore, the Russian foreign ministry spokesperson, Maria Zakharova, she's going to correct all of us. You see, it's not Russia that has a problem with invading Ukraine. It's not that. You see, Poland wants to invade Ukraine. Bruce, you didn't sound convinced of this when I told you about this in prep. Poland wants to invade Ukraine from, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure, but somehow or another, Poland now wants to invade Ukraine. I, I don't I don't understand, but okay, she's going to explain it. I have just another proposal for you. Let's uh, address another answer to the question why NATO is not uh, including Ukraine. Probably you would like this answer more, maybe because the western part of Ukraine in terms of uh, Poland should belong to Poland. And, and this topic is only uh, uh, starting for Poland. Ukraine is not needed in NATO in that uh, composition. And there is an obvious uh, desire of Poland to invade the western part of uh, Ukraine. This is why Ukraine is not invited to NATO, because uh, if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, NATO members themselves are should recognize borders of Ukraine. And NATO members are not interested in that because Poland's, uh, inter Poland is interested in the western part of Ukraine. I didn't realize that Poland had a desired interest to invade the western part of Ukraine. And I didn't realize that it actually belonged to them somehow. I, I, I didn't know that. 
Uh, yeah, that one's that one's a new one to me. Um, I I I cannot I cannot even fathom that being the case. That makes absolutely no sense. I'm I'm pretty sure Poland just wants to be left the hell alone. I think and, uh, I think Russia is yeah. looking for an out. Is is my yes. my guess? They have got, and I told you this last week. They have got to get out of Ukraine. And the problem is, is that if you're Russia and you have to get out of Ukraine, then this is going to mean a couple of things. This is going to mean a peace deal, right? Which means you're going to have to bring some concessions to the table. What does that mean if you're a Vladimir Putin? That means you're going to be, in their eyes, you're going to be ostracized and humiliated and his government and him would fall. He would have to resign and he would be replaced. I, I'm just speaking politically. That's that's what would have to happen. But if you have a concession, then that means you're going, or if you have a peace deal, that means you're going to have to have concession. I would venture to say that those two territories that they illegally annexed are probably going to have to go back. That would be my guess. And I'd say that Crimea would probably have to go back because they illegally annexed that in what was it, 2013 or something? Yeah, 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. So I think all of that territory is going to have to go back, at least in the concession part of things. We know that they're probably not going to take that option. But whatever's going on behind the scenes, I, I'm looking to another aspect. I'm looking at China. China's doing their whole thing with Taiwan and all the rest of it. Honestly, I don't think at the end of it, if, if China moves on Taiwan, they run the risk of ending up like Russia in Ukraine. That's the problem. And then you have a bigger problem. The bigger problem is, is now you have both of them that are tied up and they're not going to be able to move. So you've got to have at least one working arm here in the communist bloc. Now, the other problem that we see is what is this going to do to Russia? Again, I was listening to Yuri Felchinsky, a Russian historian, and he is of the opinion, and the guy's been pretty accurate thus far, at least in his writings and, and his predictions going all the way back to many years ago. Uh, he actually, the book that I was telling you about that he wrote, Bruce, uh, Blowing Up Ukraine, he actually wrote that in 2013. He called that. So his perspective, and you can jump in on this, his, his perspective is this, by Russia continuing to do what they're doing, and if, especially if they expand and they want to go into to Western Europe, I mean, that, that would be crazy. They can't even get across the river in Ukraine. But his perspective is the following. And I see this as a real possibility the way that he put it. And that is Russia's going to collapse, as in economically, the oil and gas deals be damned. That has helped them, yes, since the 90s. Putin did make good on that, and the people supported him for that. That's what brought him to power, largely. That's what garnered him public support. You can argue faked elections, rigged elections, whatever. But nonetheless, the people appreciated the fact that there was somebody that was willing to raise the standard of living for the average Russian. And it was Putin. And the people backed him for it, at least historically, you know, from the 90s on up to, to now. But the ruble, and we're watching it, the ruble just hit 92 to 1. That's the lowest in, I think, five years. How is their economy thriving if they're looking at a ruble, and they've got this supposed BRICS deal, you know, the, this uh, BRICS alliance or whatever. And you're backing that up with 92 to 1, and the dollar's tanking. The dollar is tanking. The dollar's not exactly as strong as it used to be, or hasn't anybody noticed, but 92 to 1? Now, again, back to Felchinsky's point, if Russia collapses, you have a, a, a criminal gang in there that's running things, and they're not going to go quietly. They're just not going to give that up. Felchinsky... I heard him say it this morning in his own words. 
I was listening to a couple of broadcasts he did months ago. It was on the, um, I believe it's the Silicon Curtain podcast. You can go back and you can listen to it. He did a few of them. But in the in these podcasts, he he's, he's very clear in, in what he says. He says that if you even have any hope of some form of representative democracy, and that's just a, a, a very limited form. If you have any hope of that in Russia, then you would have to see a Nazi style defeat in World War II happen in Russia if you're to see any kind of democratic movement take place. And it would have to be the people taking the initiative, not from the top down, has to be from the bottom up. Well, his concern is right now, the track that they're on, you have this gang of criminals in there that are not going to give up power. And so they will take the losses, they will take the collapse, but then this becomes the problem. He believes that China is going to come in and basically take them over, more or less, because they've got no one else to turn to. You can't turn to the West now because you've alienated the West by what you've done. You don't have any hopes of getting these business deals back because the politicians here, because of your agendas that have historically built their careers on supporting Moscow, because of politics and agendas, they can no longer do that. And so by public decree, they have to be against it. They have to be against Moscow. They can't help their friends anymore. They put themselves in this situation. So you can't turn to the West for deals. The only other option you have is to turn to China. That's your only buyer, if you will. That's your only customer. And so Falchinsky believes that they will come in and essentially buy out the Russians. They'll essentially absorb Russia, more or less. What do you think of that? I, I think it's very possible because if you look at if you if you look at what Russia and China uh, you look at the two of them, they're pretty inseparable. I mean, the hardware, as an example, the hardware uh, that China received and uh, then mimicked uh, was Russian. Um, their little, you know, uh, junkyard dog, uh, North Korea, uses all Russian equipment. So it's very, it's very possible that they're, they're, they'll do that. The thing is, this was going to happen at some point anyway. Um, one of the analogies I used was um, back in World War II, you you had the situation of the Nazis and the the Japanese. Uh, they 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 both said they were the superior race. Well, if they would have won the war, eventually they're going to have to duke it out between themselves because they both said we're both superior. You can't have two superior races. The same thing here with China and Russia. They both say they're the superior communists. Well, eventually you're going to have to duke it out because only one of them can be the winner. Actually, China, to your, to your point there, an interesting comparison you made there. To your point, China actually does follow that master race line. They do follow that. They do believe that they are superior in every way to any Westerner, any Western country, culture, people, doesn't matter. They do follow that and they instill that in their People's Liberation Army, Navy, Air Force, everybody, all their troops. And you 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 hear that from uh soldiers that were once soldiers and now are Westerners, you you can hear that from them saying um, exactly that. There's been some people that have come out and said, um, I've watched videos of this in the past. They say, yeah, we're, we're basically lied to. God, the same thing with uh, soldiers from North Korea. North Korea is like, th that. that's like the apex of like propaganda because they'll come out of there thinking basically the world is being held together by North Korea. That, 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 that is the whole reason the world has not gone into complete destruction. Uh, and then they get out and they realize that North Korea is just an absolute he hellhole compared to 
almost every other country in the world. And the the freedoms and the liberties and everything that you get coming to the U.S., they're just completely flabbergasted. And not only that, but then the one thing that really stands out to the average person from uh, one of these countries is the generosity, the kindness of Westerners. They don't get that kind of stuff in their own countries. So uh, it, 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 it's sad. It's sad. It is. I, I'm glad. I'm really glad you brought up North Korea because there's some problems that we've been having with North Korea in the last few days. Apparently, one of our aircraft or something breached their airspace totally by accident because we were on maneuvers with some South Korean guys and I believe some Japanese. We were drilling and one of our guys just just like skimmed their their whatever and they caught it and they went ballistic. The sister of Kim Jong-un, so Kim Yo-jong, you know, she she's the, the spokesperson quite a bit. So recently, I don't know why he's not doing it, quite frankly, but Okay, this was her official statement. Uh, Bruce, I'll put this up on screen so you can see, you can see right here. Yeah, this is her official statement. You can see this is from the, uh, the KCNA. So this is their Korean Central News Agency, whatever it is. Right. Uh, this is put out in English, Russian, Mandarin, Japanese, and uh, Spanish. So you can get it in just about any language you need. This is from Pyongyang yes, just yesterday from their official state news agency. Kim Yo-jong, vice department director of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, issued the following press statement on Tuesday. As regards the provocation by the U.S. forces, the military of the Republic of Korea again impudently took the lead in denying the encroachment on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's sovereignty while shamelessly asserting that it was a normal flight of the Republic of Korea and the U.S. The issue related to the relevant aerial area is one between the Korean People's Army and the U.S. forces. The military gangsters of the Republic of Korea should stop acting impudently and shut up at once. <laughs> The strategic reconnaissance plane of the U.S. Air Force illegally intruded into the economic water zone of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea side in the East Sea of Korea eight times. I guess it wasn't just once. It was eight times in the sky above the sea, 435 kilometers east of Tongchon of Kwangong province, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I have already notified beforehand of the counter reaction of our army upon authorization. In case of repeated illegal intrusion, the U.S. forces will experience a very critical flight. They're very upset. Very critical flight. So are you threatening to shoot down our aircraft? That would that would be. I believe that's what it is. Yes. OK, uh, that is an act of war. And I'm uh, look, if North Korea, if you decided to do that, um, I, you know, I we're kind of trashing Russia and like uh, the, the hardware that Russia has is far inferior to what we were being told. And now North Korea, who is one of uh, as far as the Asian countries and the, and the way they're talked up and, and how North Korea is such a threat and all of that. Just take some look at satellite photos of North Korea at night. Your civilian life and your military, if your military is really advanced, your civilian populace is going to be equally as advanced because you have the infrastructure to build the, the military weapons. So the civilian populace is going to benefit from that as well. If they're so advanced and, and uh, you know, such a big threat, then why is most of their country dark? The, the only part of the country that isn't is like Pyongyang. That's probably because that's the uh, glorious leader or marshal or whatever the hell he calls himself now. It's probably because that's his mansion that's lighting it up. 
No. If North Korea shot one of our planes down, that's an act of war, and that would be a bad move. This goes back to the doctrine again, the Soviet military doctrine, because they were Soviet-backed at their founding during the Korean War by this kid's grandfather, Kim Il-sung. So they're following Soviet military doctrine in the way that they do things. I agree with you, Bruce, from our perspective as Westerners, that that's how we see things. But in their perspective, from their doctrine, because we have to be objective and examine both sides here, they're justified in what they do. Everything that they do. This is an escalation caused by the U.S. in their eyes, the way they see things. There are two types of war. There are just wars and there are unjust wars in their doctrine. Two totally different meanings, same words compared to us. Just wars to them means that they are in defense of the socialist and communist ideology. They will fight to defend that. And anyone who is against that is unjust. And so they reserve the right, per their doctrine, to take any actions they deem necessary to stomp out that threat against them. So this is why every time you see the West in general, I'm not picking on one country here, just the, the NATO countries. Anytime you see them make any move whatsoever, doesn't matter what that is. It could be asking for a single concession in a talk. Doesn't even have to be an inked deal. Just a single concession from Russia, China, North Korea, or any of the other communist countries in Central and South America. That is always aggression to them under their doctrine. And so they are justified in the struggle, in the Marxian struggle, to fight against that and to promote it as such to their population so they have the endorsement of being protected by the vanguard, which is the Communist Party, the Politburo, and the Central Committee. I just thought we should be objective in explaining that this, this is why every time they launch, a uh, North Korea launches a missile and it splashes down in the... Um, uh, in the Yellow Sea or something. This is why every time that happens, it's always the U.S.'s fault. Every time they launch something and we threaten to shoot it down and the Japanese threaten to shoot it down, they always say, per their official statements, that the U.S. is escalating and that's why this is happening. Because mm -hmm. they're justified in what they're doing, per their doctrine. Right. And their doctrine makes no sense at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of, from all sides, from every direction, I'm tired of the and dagger and the bluffing and the blah blah I, I i just i don't care anymore just can can we can we can we just have if you're for uh freedom and liberty you get one jersey if you're against it you get another jersey let's just duke it out let's go let's let's just take it to the mattress pads and let's just duke it out get this over with and loser you live in exile or accept the terms of, of whoever wins, whatever. I, I, I just, just get this over with. I'm, I'm tired of uh, this nonsense. It's just dragging us down as a race. Again, you'll get no argument from me on that, but this would spawn an entirely new theological discussion, my friend, because the Cuba, I forgot to mention even Cuba, right? When I said the communist countries, I guess that's part of Central and South America. That's more the Caribbean. But you even have the Cuban dictator going to Moscow a few weeks ago, meeting with Putin. They did a whole thing with the state media and everything. And what did Putin, in his own words, from his own speech in that photo op that they did there at the Kremlin, what did he say? He said, we're pleased to welcome the leader from the Island of Liberty. So what is freedom? 
What is liberty? It's how you define it. So again, I don't disagree with you, but they're defining that. And again, Cuba, great people, wonderful people, beautiful country, but oppressed under the thumb of communism. And it's it's just you see what it's done. Have you ever seen Cuba before the communist revolution of the Castro brothers? Take a look at it. It's vastly different to what it is today. And you call that an island of liberty? I don't think so. The poor Cuban people deserve better. Agreed. I've I've heard testimonies, eyewitness accounts. Uh, whatever look at the Cuban immigrants that... to the U.S. Look, look at yeah. the ones that, that immigrate to the U.S. I've met several Cuban immigrants to the U.S. And you know what? They are proud to be Americans. They are yeah. proud to be there. Yeah. Uh, so if your country is so great and free and uh, why, why I, I've made this argument before, why are you trying to come to the United States if your country is so great? And then they keep trying to tell us that America is so terrible. Why do we keep having all these people coming here illegally? Other than the fact that they get free welfare, but you know, that that's uh, a problem in and of itself. But I, I don't know. I, I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm ready for, let's just, let's duke it out. If you guys, if you guys want to start throwing nukes, let's throw nukes. Let's, let's say, let's get this going. Let's just, let's duke it Bruce, out. You want the bandaid ripped off, don't you? I, I do. You don't, you don't want I, I do. No, I, I'm, I'm, I have patience for a lot of things, but this is, this is getting, this is one of my soapboxes. Uh, when, when it comes down to efficiency and, you know, like your conscience, you know, things that are right and wrong, when it comes down to those kind of things, I have no tolerance just from an efficiency standpoint, take out all my, my political beliefs or my religious beliefs or take, you know, take all that out of, out of the picture and just look at it from a evolutionary standpoint. If the human race is to evolve and improve, we have to get past this BS. We have to get past this and we have to get it out of our system. So either we're going to lose and it will be the end of our race or at least the end of our race as we know it, or we're going to continue down the, the road of freedom and liberty and try to spur innovation and uh, improve ourselves uh, and and start traveling space, start making more efficient machines and and just growing as a species. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get past all of this just just for that sake alone. I, I just want to see our race thrive and and quit just surviving. You know what? I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. I couldn't agree with you more on everything you just said. I'll take that option over the former any day of the week. And I will continue to fight for that. So will you. And so will everybody else that we have on here. And that's why we're here. I'm glad you're uh, glad you're back for a day. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Yeah. God willing. You know, we don't have rapture or nuclear holocaust. Yeah, I'll be here. Even if we have nuclear holocaust, we still have to talk about it. Actually, yeah, if we did actually have nuclear holocaust and the internet still existed, we probably would still yeah, be here. We would still be here, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, if there's an EMP, which we didn't yeah, even talk yeah, about those weapons today. If we didn't even talk, yeah. we didn't even talk about those. That's a whole other discussion in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, that's going to be... I, I'm reading about nuclear stuff now, but I'm going to get into EMP stuff and cyber warfare after that. And oh my goodness, I can't even, I can't even wait to dive into that because that is... That's going to be great. You talk about conversations that we're having now about nuclear war and conventional war. Wait till we talk about the wars of the future. Before we kick off, I would also say uh, not just EMP, but also um, artificial intelligence being used as a weapon, um, you know, cyber warfare. I guess you could just say cyber warfare in general. That kind of encompasses everything. That's also that that world is also very you can kill a power uh, grid 
with cyber warfare just the same as you could with uh, an EMP. So because our our systems are not hardened, it's not protected well against those things. It, it's we, we've kind of touched on it before without you know dragging it out too long. Basically, our systems are more protected than others, other countries and whatnot. But it's still kind of um, uh, shall we say. One of them is runny poo and our poo is a little bit more solid in the toilet. That That's basically, I mean, it's still crappy. It's still bad. Uh, but then when you throw artificial intelligence in the picture, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to drag this on a little bit now because I just remembered something. I went on a science bench here uh, a few days ago and was doing a bunch of sciencey nerd stuff. One of the things I learned about is artificial intelligence and using that to crack not just artificial intelligence, but also um, uh, quantum computing and how it can crack our encryption systems. Um, and I won't go into the, the the great detail of how to do it. Summarize it with this. Um, it would take, let's say, I, I think it was something like 40 million years or something like that for our current encryption and our current method, if you were to just try to brute force it, right? It would take like it would take like 40 million years to crack it. I mean, it it's really good. The problem is the the way quantum computing works currently normal computers only have a bit and it's either on or off in quantum computing they have qubits and qubits are able to be in three states at once um technically more than that but we we only measure in three states and it can do those so in other words it can do three calculations per bit uh so to crack our current encryption methods if we had a perfect qubit it would take something like 2500 of them and um, you could crack it in a few minutes or seconds. So they're they're completely changing our encryption methods and all of that now. Instead of using a, a long string of numbers, now we're using um, base. They're they're trying to make it to be a thousand different points on a grid uh, dimension. So anyway, uh, that's a, that's a long way of saying um, it's not just EMP that we should be worried about or concerned about. We should we we have to be on top of all of this. I also would like to throw this one in at the end. I know I said we were going to we were going to step out of here, but I'd like to throw this one in there. We talk about Elon Musk and you talked about AI and everything. And, and we were talking about EMPs and all that stuff. He's been a big proponent of these electric cars and these systems and everything. And he's got this uh, AI thing, this XAI or AIX or whatever the thing is he's working on. He's working on this Neuralink thing. But I've been overly critical of him. I don't even think I should say overly critical, but I've been very critical of him and I don't like the dealings that he's doing with China. I don't like it at all. I've been saying that for a very long time now. Uh, I can't quite put a date on it, but it's been at well over a year or two that I've been saying that. Well, my suspicions have come true. And we mentioned this on the, uh, the podcast earlier in the week, but we didn't get into detail. I thought I would get your take on it before you are out too far for the um, the actual you know time variance of it, so you know it has a shelf life. Tesla commits to promoting core socialist values in a pledge with Chinese auto companies. Uh, what what are core socialist values? Um, uh, well, I guess would be the question. Yeah, yeah, and engage. Basically, he's going to have to take CCP members onto the onto the company more or less. Uh, is, is what it's going to be. The pledge Tesla made in China includes not engaging in abnormal pricing and prioritizing quality. I mean, in, in a capitalist system, uh, it, it's better. It's a better imagery for the populace to say I'm um, to say that exact same thing. So hmm, uh, definitely something to watch. Uh, I, I'm I'm um, 
somewhat he's gotta, he's gotta get out of there i'm sorry it's just like you we've got to decouple from from china as in like don't call us we'll call you kind of thing and I, we would never pick up the phone I, I i don't disagree i i'm just i i could still make giving him the benefit of the doubt i could still make an i, I hate sounding like i'm an elon musk apologist he's he's a freaking left of center he's not someone that i support politically uh but trying to be fair giving him the benefit of the doubt I could make an argument that is um that's literally him bsing uh and saying yeah we're not going to do any kind of like abnormal pricing like we're not going to like jack the prices up or something like that and continue making quality products okay that, that's kind of what we expect as consumers anyway so definitely somebody to keep watching because uh, i don't trust him either i don't like this this love affair that we've got going on with shanghai and beijing i don't like it one bit uh no, not at no all do I. we're gonna go ahead and call this one done it's been an absolute pleasure my friend we'll see you next week thank you for being here today thank you to all the listeners god bless everyone and have a great evening